my name's Teresa, and I'm from Long Island, New York, and I've lived in the beautiful state of Washington for about three weeks now, and I'm here to talk a little bit about Teen Challenge. Um, the best way I can tell you about Teen Challenge is really to tell you what it's done in my life. Um, you know, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I'm, I'm someone who started using drugs at a very early age, and, and my life was just always just full of despair, just, just, just not wanting to live, and, and just feeling empty all the time, and and I went through so many, so many things that I didn't have to go through, and, uh, you know, I finally became an IV heroin user. I say finally like it's a good thing, but I became one, and, uh, you know, my life went that way for another 10 years, and um, the Lord intervened. He intervened in my life because I thought I was just going to die on the streets, die doing what I was doing. I, you know, I really just didn't see any hope. And, and one day someone sent me a link to Teen Challenge on my phone, you know, and I opened up that link and, and I looked at it and I was like, I don't want anything to do with this. I'm not going there. I'm not a teen. You can't put me somewhere for a year. I'm not doing it. And 20 minutes later, I was on the side of the road crying, doing an intake with Long Island Teen Challenge. And, and I <laughs> got there an hour later and when I got there, they, they gave me a Bible, and the Lord just started to minister to my heart through his word, and, and the women and the men of that program just started speaking into my life, and, and, and I started to, like, feel whole. I started to feel like the thing that was missing this whole time was the Lord, and, and like, I didn't, like I said, I didn't grow up in a Christian family, so I didn't really have anyone around me ever to tell me that. Like, I, I had no clue, and and, and the Lord, he just, he had other plans, and he directed me there. And, and, I, and I went through that program, and I graduated. And, and when it came time to look into an internship, he directed me here. Because I can certainly tell you that I didn't wake up one day and say, hmm, I think I'll go to Washington and intern at their Teen Challenge. Like, it blows my mind that you just never know where he's going to take you. And I just got here three weeks ago, and, and I'm just so excited about what Teen Challenge is doing here in Washington. We're in the Graham Women's Center, which is about 10 minutes down the road, and we have a new building that, that's going to be completed in two weeks, and we're going from housing 11 women to 25. And in the three weeks that I've been here, I've seen the Lord just, oh, I've just seen how he's changed these women's lives already. That, and how he's ministering to them and working in their lives. And, and it, it's just such a beautiful sight to see. And, and I w if you would have told me that this is where I would be, again, I would never have believed you. And, you know, I'll tell you, we were at church the other night, and, you know, and I drove the girls there, and I just watched these women dressed up, walking into the house of the Lord, and, and my heart just, oh, just swelled, you know, just to see what the Lord can do. And, and like I said, we're just so excited. And, I get overwhelmed, like, especially listening to that song that you guys sang, because it was so beautiful. And I just, I'm so grateful. And none of it would have ever been possible without Teen Challenge, ever. And, and I love that you guys want to support us, because that gives us the opportunity to do what he's done with me, with other women. And, um, and I'm just so excited to be here, and I'm excited to talk to anyone after service who wants to support us and we're always looking for volunteers, and, and we're always looking to show people the place, and, and just for everyone to get involved with what, what God's doing at Teen Challenge. And that's all I have to share, so thank you.
I'm KJ, and I am super excited that you're here tonight. We're really honored that you came to share this journey with us. If by the end of tonight you find that you are completely immersed in this book and you can't wait until next week to hear more of it, you can pick up your own copy of Chimera within the Ambit out in the foyer at intermission or after tonight's event. We're asking for a suggested donation of $10-$15 per book because 100% of the proceeds for the books are going straight to Teen Challenge. Another great way that you can support Teen Challenge is by picking up one of our Freedom Bracelets or our Freedom Keychains. Those are out there for a suggested donation of $15 to $20. Again, 100% of the proceeds for that will also go to Teen Challenge. If you would like to just make a straight donation to Teen Challenge, you can look for a red envelope in the back of the seats in front of you. Tuck your donation in there. If you're making a check, you can make it out to Celebration Center. And then you'll see that there's a box by the door on the way out of the sanctuary in the back corner back there. You can slip your envelope in there and we will make sure that it gets calculated in with everything else going to Teen Challenge. Also, if you like what you hear tonight and you are interested in maybe bringing someone new back with you next week who hasn't heard the first three chapters, you can have them listen to them on podcasts at ccpuelt.com. The reading from tonight will be available for the next week, and then each week that we do a reading, we'll carry the podcast for the following week. So if you miss a week, or if you want to get someone caught up to speed and they want to listen to it, then they can do that as a podcast, or they can get a copy of the book from us here in the foyer, or you can order a copy of the book on Amazon.com. Also, just as a reminder, the book that we're going to be reading has a lot of mature, really deep content to it. So we do recommend it for kids that are over the age of 14. If you have kids, you want to take them upstairs to the child care area, you'll get a raffle ticket up there with a four digit, last four digits will be your code. The four digit code, will, if it pops up on the screen at any time during the reading, that's your indicator that we need you to go upstairs and help us out with something with your kids. If you, for any reason, need to step out of the sanctuary during the reading and you step out on this side, we will have live audio playing out there as well so that you can still hear what's going on inside of the sanctuary. Also, as a reminder, we are collecting or asking for a simple donation of $2 per child or $8 per family to help go to our youth that's working upstairs in the child care area. That money is going to help support scholarships to send those kids to camp. So it's a great cause. You can make those donations for child care at the table down here where we're selling books and bracelets and keychains. If you have any questions about that, find somebody in a reading shirt and we can help answer your questions about child care. Tonight we will be covering the first three chapters of Chimera within the Ambit. We're going to stop and take a short intermission break for about 10 minutes after the second chapter, and then we'll come back and read the third chapter, and then we'll close out for the night. You'll know that the intermission is just about over when you see the lights go on and off, on and off again. That's your indicator that it's time to get back to your seat so you don't miss anything. I'm excited. I hope you're excited too. Take a deep breath. Because here we go. Enjoy. Holy cow. Here we go. Chapter 1, Within the Ambit. <clears throat> And by the way, when you're doing a live reading, there might be some um, throat clearing and some yawning and some big deep breaths and some spit collecting in my mouth. And I will try and control all of that. But 
It's not a perfected art yet. Maybe by week eight, I'll have this all down. <clears throat> I felt the cold nip at my nose as I stepped onto the front porch. Before I could close the door, I turned to take one last look at the two small lumps hidden under the blankets of the bed across the room. I lingered for a moment and imagined peeling off the layers of warm clothes I'd toiled to wrap myself in so that I could cuddle up once more with my two little lumps who were fast asleep by the fire. Our cottage was small and humble, but we were grateful to have it. Other single mothers in the ambit weren't as lucky as I to have this much. I'm pretty sure my father had something to do with it, but had never asked directly. The cottage we called home was basically just a large room with a two-way fireplace in the center of it. One side of the room contained a long wood table with a bench and two mismatched chairs for seating, a small stove, an icebox, and a counter space with a water basin. The other side of the room, toward the back of the cottage, contained the bed with my two little lumpy children breathing slowly and softly under the blankets. I wished I could hold them while they slept, gently stroking their brown curls and lulling them with my maternal hymns. I think I knew somewhere inside that Chasen, my boy, would have loved it. He may have even pretended to sleep longer just to indulge in his mother's attention, but Isla would never tolerate this doting from me. She'd have to be in a very deep sleep for me to have managed to snuggle with her. She's always been more independent and stubborn than her brother. In fact, I'm sure the only reason she still slept in my bed was to be close to him, not me. She seemed to feel a sort of responsibility to protect him from everyone, including me. They manifested a bond unlike one I'd ever witnessed. Not a single night had passed, since they were conceived, actually, that they hadn't slept side by side. I smiled at the thought of them spooning in my womb like they spoon now, warm, comfortable, safe. Isla was born first, then Chasen. That was nearly 11 years ago now. I drew in a deep breath and began pulling the door closed when the silence was broken by a frantic wheezing sound. It was all too familiar a sound to me, and instinct took over my movements as I threw the door open to run inside the cottage. I hurried to the side of the bed. Chasen rose up to his elbows as he choked, wheezed, and gagged on the air that tried to find its way to his lungs. Isla, too, was sitting up with him with one of her small hands rested on his chest while the other sternly patted his back. Chasen, you have to breathe slowly, she encouraged him. Mother, why is it so cold in here? Her eyes shot a look in my direction, then passed me to the open door. Mother, you left the door open. I didn't respond. Her disappointment in me came as no surprise. Isla whipped back the covers and jumped up. After slamming the door closed, she darted back across the room to collect firewood, which she added to the flames. Then she stoked the fire until it was crackling and hot. Jason loved the light and color of the fire as it burned. It distracted him from the pain. Together, Isla and I each took one of his hands, placing them on our chests, and practiced slow breathing for him to emulate. Then the three of us sat quietly until his coughing and wheezing subsided. I have to go. Are you okay? I asked Jason with frustration for his discomfort but concern for my timing. He nodded. Isla shot daggers at me with her eyes. I wasn't sure if it was because she was still upset about the open door or about my urgency to run out of it. Either way, I didn't have time to ask. I had to go. Outside of our cottage was a lane of others similar to it. These cottages were about the same size as ours and had about as much land surrounding them. I was the only single mother on my lane, which disgruntled a number of the neighbors. I was never really sure if it was that I refused to be downgraded after my husband's death or if it was that the other wives were threatened by a single woman who may have had motives for stealing one of their heads of household. In the ambit, having a head of household 
or man meant respect and security. Our lane contained a total of 12 cottages, each of which was linked to a small farm, including a barn and an assortment of livestock. Every resident in the ambit was responsible for supporting their kin and was provided with enough to do so. And if you didn't maintain your farm, you didn't eat. It was that simple. While this may seem like enough of a motive to woo other heads of household, I liked being single. I was able to hold my own on the farm enough to keep it up and keep our bellies full. I've ne never had any interest in relinquishing the head of household title to anyone, as much as Isla may have despised that fact. Each resident was assigned a job through the ambit's guiding authority. Most times you were trained by your parents to do your family's trade. My father was a doctor before the ambit emerged, so the most natural career choice for me was the only one that even closely resembled that of a doctor. I'm a midwife. Since the ambit outlawed medical advancements of any sort, I'm more of an expert in how to deliver babies using the most natural means possible. Sometimes I feel like I'm more there for assistance and moral support than anything. Before the ambit came about, medicine and technology were almost considered religions. A large group of former Americans known as the supporters had advanced technology and medicine so far that illness, disease, and even the most common ailments had been abolished with an annual immunization. My father, being in the medical field, helped administer the immunizations every year over a two-day period. The drug used in the immunization was called MIL, which stood for multifocal immunolovenox. The mill immunization was discovered in the year 2050 in what was then known as the United States of America. The discovery was credited as the single greatest medical advancement in history, instantly propelling the United States to ultimate supremacy over the rest of the civilized world. And while most Americans were pleased with their newest sense of immortality, not everyone supported it, leading to the development of a group known as the Naturals. Simply put, the naturals believed in a more organic way of life. They were fearful of the immunization's permanent effects and the ethics surrounding it. At the time, the United States of America was considered the home of the free, and so it was never mandatory for the naturals, or anyone else for that matter, to get the immunization. And while both sides of the political and medical debate tried to remain civil, the naturals' opposition did eventually create a divide between the country's inhabitants. Ultimately, the naturals withdrew from modern society so they could preserve their pure way of life without technology, electricity, medicine, or eating meat. Meanwhile, the rest of the country used the mill immunization to lengthen their lifespans and strengthen its military forces. The United States also used the immunization as leverage and trade for the best commodities other countries had to offer, all while keeping a monopoly on the formula used to create the mill. By the year 2080, more than 99% of the civilized world used the immunization annually to abolish illness, disease, and even the common cold. The world's population soared to 10 billion plus. And in 2084, 30 plus years after it was first introduced, the annual mill immunization was considered by most to be a necessary part of life. There were a few minor drawbacks to the immunization. One was the small scar that it left at the injection site. It was common practice to alternate between the upper right and left arms each year for the immunization. Each injection left a mark, and so it became common to see a sleeve of small circular scars up and down both arms of its recipients. The other drawbacks were the exclusion rules for the annual immunizations. Those excluded were pregnant women, children under the age of three, and anyone that had an injury exposing their bone marrow within three months of the immunization window. 
These excluded groups were more susceptible to serious illness because their immune systems were vulnerable. Also, imprisoned criminals were not given the vaccine as part of their punishment. So opposition, some opposition to this exception argued that the country would spend more on health care for the sick inmates than on the vaccine to keep them healthy. The opposition was overruled with the justification that not vaccinating them meant only killing them off faster anyway. Crime rates dropped significantly. At the end of our lane, there was a stretch of road called the Mall. On one end of the Mall, there were flower vendors, grocery markets, and fresh fruit and vegetable stands. In the middle of the Mall, there were clothers and handmade furniture galleries. The Animal Wellness and Trade Office, Adult Wellness Clinic, Child Wellness Clinic, and the school occupied the other end. Around the mall, there were a number of other lanes like mine, that, which stretched out to accommodate the other Ambit family cottages and farms. Your profession determined which lane you lived on. Farmers and fishermen lived near the grocers and fruit and vegetable stands. The carpenters and tailors lived on the lanes off of the center of the mall. The teachers, caregivers, midwives, and upper echelon of the guiding authority lived on the other end, nearest the coordinating mall location. I worked in the wellness clinic for children, one of the nicest structures on the mall. The only structure nicer was the school, which was also used as a hall for the Ambit Guiding Authority's meetings. The wellness clinic wasn't far from the end of my lane, but the cold made it that hard to walk even that distance. In the Ambit, only households with men had horses, so walking was a way of life for me. I burst through the door of the clinic with a sigh of relief from the bitter cold. A shiver ran up and down my spine as the heat met my body and the numbness from the winter cold began tingling my fingers and toes like pins. Sarah, my father's apprentice, was there as I walked in, waiting with a disturbed, nervous look on her face. Good, you're here, Sarah exclaimed, rushing over to help me remove my thick layers of wool. Your father's already here, and he's worried that we're going to lose her. Sarah's white, pale skin looked even more translucent than normal. It may have been because of the cold, but most likely it was the situation waiting for me in the next room. Farrah nervously shifted her weight from fit to foot to foot as I finished disrobing and quickly slid on my sterile white birthing garment. I was furiously scrubbing my hands with soap and water when my father ducked his head out from behind the curtain. His eyes searched the room for me, and when they found me, he focused his attention and tone and declared, I need you now. My father was what some considered uniquely handsome. He's young-looking for 65 years old, mostly because of the mill immunizations he received for the first 36 years of his life. He's what used to be referred to as African-American, but I've only ever heard him refer to himself as black. His dark skin was beautiful, though wrinkles and some spots have appeared over the years. He's tall with a slender build, muscular in stature from the work that he did to support his farm. My father was hard-working and talented at many things. Being a father was not one of those things. Growing up, my father was harsh, stern, seemingly vacant and even cold at times. I never fully understood what my mother saw in him, but she loved him like her life depended on it. She said that he changed when the ambit emerged, but I guess I was too young to remember anything but the man standing before me now. To me, he seemed more impressed, more interested in impressing people and maintaining a certain way of life than he did in being a father to me or a grandfather to my children. He did have a soft spot for Isla, though, probably because she reminded him of her dad. Before my husband died, my father played a bigger role in our lives. He was fond of James, but when James passed away nearly five years ago now, I guess my father no longer cared enough to stay present for the rest of us. 
After James's death, the guiding authority insisted that I move from our cottage to a lowlier lane on the mall that suited a single widow with no trade talent. I assured them that I could manage my property while stepping up my responsibilities at the children's wellness clinic, but I was nearly positive that my children and I were going to be forced from our home, and so one day they just stopped hounding me about it. As much as I hated to admit it, I think my father had something to do with it. I never asked, but I don't care either. When I pulled back the curtain, a small examination area was waiting there for me. Els, one of the Ambit locals, was sprawled out in front of me, pale and unconscious. And except for the pieces that were matted to her forehead and face, her thin blonde hair had fallen loosely on the table under her. Wet trails, where sweat and tears had dripped from her forehead and eyes, pooled around her. Her blue eyes were only half open, but completely blank. She was on her back on the table, and her round belly looked like someone had piled a mound of dirt on her and then covered her with a blanket. If it weren't for her belly, she wouldn't have even looked pregnant because she was so thin. From under the crisp white blanket, I could see subtle movements. The baby was kicking and squirming, waiting to be born. How long has she been out? I asked. It's been about 15 minutes since she last pushed, and then she passed out, my father explained. Her stomach's been moving, but I've been waiting for you to get here so we could cut her open and get that baby out. But you'll know if she, she'll die if we do that. I made an obvious observation, confused by his choice of action. She's already dying. We need to move faster. We can count that to get her baby out, or we can count them both for lost. He spoke clearly to me in a tone that told me he was stating a fact and had no intention of negotiating its accuracy. My father opened and closed drawers at the nearest counter. He selected different instruments, laying them on a crisp white cloth on the top of the cupboard. A flash of light reflected off the blade of the scalpel as he pulled it into view. The sight of it sent me into action. We can wake her. I know we can wake her, I panicked. In my last desperate attempt, I hurried to the head of the bed and grabbed Elsa's limp body by the shoulders. I rattled her briskly. There was no response. I shook her harder and began yelling, Els, Els, wake up! Still no response. I looked up at my father and Farah for help. Farah only stared at me. My father stood cold as stone, watching me with no emotion. He was waiting for me to move so he could cut her open, so he could kill her. I turned back to Els, and with all my might, I slapped her as hard as I could across the face. Tears rolled down my cheeks. Her pale face rolled away from me. Her empty eyes rolled into the back of her head. She was already gone. An hour later, I sat in a chair at the front of the wellness clinic with my heart in my stomach. Another one lost. Another one lost to the miracle of childbirth. I could hear the sarcasm in my head. My heart was broken as it had been many times before. Another mother dead as she tried to give life. The thought twisted my mind. But it wasn't just a devoted mother that had been sacrificed this time. A mother dying during childbirth was not uncommon in the ambit, but a mother and her child was especially devastating. I returned to the sink to wash my hands again. I scrubbed them feverishly, trying to remove the smell of Elsa's death from them. My father was right. My father was right about cutting the baby out of Els, about at least saving one of them. I felt helpless. I knew that there was nothing more I could have done. My father was a doctor, 
the thought haunted me. The skin on my hands began to ache. I'd scrubbed them raw. He spent the first half of his life caring for people, saving them, protecting them, and now he was so quick to give up on her. Why? Where had his humanity gone? A hand touched my shoulder and I jumped. You need to go home, my father's voice ordered. Why? I whispered. Why? He reiterated. Because you're a mess and Elsa's mother's on her way and I have to tell her that her daughter and grandbaby are dead. So unless you'd like that honor, I suggest you go home. I twisted around to look at his face. I wanted to see him in the flesh for a split second. I hoped it wasn't my father that said such insensitive things to me. For a split second, I wished he wasn't my father at all. I felt my blood boil. I meant, why didn't you do something? Why didn't you save her? You didn't even try to save her. I paused to see if he would respond. He swallowed hard with visible frustration. I continued, what's wrong with you? How can you just stand there? Still no response. You're a doctor. You're the only person in the whole ambit who knows what you're doing, and you could have saved her. I tried not to scream at him as I gestured to the dead body in the next room. His response cut me. It doesn't matter how much I know, Britt. The ambit forbids the practice of medicine. He didn't even raise his voice, and that infuriated me further. His defense seemed rehearsed and empty. I couldn't stand it. You think I don't know that? Now I was screaming at him, moving in closer. I'm reminded every day when I look at your grandson, medicine is forbidden. If it weren't, he might be able to run and jump and play. Don't test me. I know more about that stupid law than you ever will. I could feel the hair on the back of my neck stand up like a cat. I was ready to pounce. The door opened behind me and my father's glare broke as he looked up to see Elsa's mother enter the clinic. He forced a fake smile in her direction. I found the floor with my eyes. It's time for you to go now, Britt, he said calmly. I did my best to compose my anger and emotion, to conceal my devastation as I turned around and gathered my things. I didn't even pause to put my warm layers on. The bitter cold sounded enticing to me compared to what was about to happen in this room. Stepping outside, I felt the cold soothe my senses. It was refreshing to me. The cold numbed my pain. It sobered my mind. I quickly reapplied my warm layers before stepping out from under the wellness clinic's stoop. Once I was dressed, I pondered my next move. I had hours left in my day. All I felt like doing was indulging in my earlier daydream. I wanted to return home to my bed and to my children, but I knew what hiding from reality would bring, so I decided to go for a walk instead. The idea of running into my father again today disturbed me, so I decided to go where he was sure never to be found. I headed toward the flower carts at the poor end of the mall. The flower carts were pathetic this time of year. It's mid-October, and so all the beautiful life around us seemed to either be dead or hidden under sheets of ice. I laughed at how, at, under my breath at how literal that thought seemed in regards to my father. He seemed dead inside or at the very least hidden under layers of ice. I enjoyed the idea that my father might blossom in the light and warmth of the sun too, but I dismissed the idea as quickly as I savored it. On my walk, I passed the clothers and wood furniture galleries located in the middle of the mall. The clothers were busy for this time of year. Through the store windows, I observed the tailors measuring and chatting, laughing and bantering. They looked warm and content. 
as though life moved on without regard for the lives lost only blocks down the mall. I felt jealous of their ignorance. One of my neighbor wives, Josie, was getting fitted for a new dress. The floor-length dress was gray with flecks of white and ugly brown buttons. No color. Her skin was the color of dirty snow. She looked old and worn. Her fingernails were too long, and they were an unhealthy yellow color. I thought most women in the ambit had nails that were too long, but that's only because they didn't have to work in the fields like I did. Long nails aren't practical, and so they annoy me. My better hands are soft as a newborn's backside, too, from all of her hard work. I moved on. Next, I passed the fresh fruit and vegetable stands. There's no way for the produce to actually be fresh during winter, so everything was preserved in jars. I loved how they looked, all lined up on the shelves with their lifelike colors shining through the glass, red, purple, green, yellow. I found it refreshing to see such bold colors, even if it wasn't fresh. I would have gladly stared at these jars all day over Josie. I kept moving. My favorite flower cart was located at the furthest end of the mall, nearest the saddest lane in the ambit. Part of me appreciated this flower cart because the bouquets were sold for very little expense, but I also loved it because I'd always been very fond of the woman that owned it. As I approached, I could make out the closed sign hanging from the wood shutter. For a moment, I reconsidered walking any closer. I couldn't help but feel that the closed sign was so accurate and absolute. I wondered if it would ever read open again. I doubted it. Closed. What's the point of being open if the flowers are dead? The cold killed them. Besides, who would open Els's flower cart now anyway? Els is dead. Coldness killed her too. Els was my friend. Like me, she was a single mom. Her son was a little older than mine. I couldn't spare the expense to buy her flowers all that often, but I tried to support her efforts. Truthfully, I knew that had the guiding authority been successful in downgrading my cottage after James's death, I would have been here on this lonely lane with her. Els was a kind soul, with a laugh that was infectious and a positivity that was unfounded. I admired that about her. Plenty of rumors circulated about who the father of her baby was, but she never said. Els was stunningly beautiful and so not well-liked by the women in the ambit. In their insecurity, I think they assumed she was pregnant by one of their married heads of household. And while I could understand their fear, Els was unbelievably loyal and not the type to be someone's mistress. It was her loyalty that made her the subject of many rumors and jokes, the target of name-calling and character assassination. But still, she kept the father of her baby's identity quiet. I remember her saying once that her situation was more complicated than just being pregnant and single. She was in love with a man who could not love her back, and for that, that was much harder than the rumors and names. I believe in him. I believe he'll come clean someday, but today just isn't that day she'd explained to me once, and when he does, you'll understand, but I won't rob him of his right to be a father and a lover just because he's afraid of who he is. I wondered about her mystery man and what it would be like for him to have loved and lost and never shared it. I felt angry at him, whoever he was, because whoever he was, whatever his story, he should have been there for her today on her last day. She at least deserved to have the man she loved so madly with her in her final moments. She announced her pregnancy only seven months ago, and now she and the baby were dead, and where was he? 
nowhere. He was a coward, just like my father. I stood in front of her flower cart and hesitantly lowered my hand onto its counter. I traced the cracks in the wood with my ungloved fingers. I guess this was my way of paying tribute to its owner, to my friend Els, the complicated, beautiful woman that I loved, admired, and never understood. A teardrop probably would have been appropriate, but the cold froze all liquid emotion to my cheeks. Sorry, ma'am, my mother isn't here, a small voice said from the doorway of the nearest grocer. Before turning around, I scrunched my eyes to catch the tears that threatened to roll out. Oh, Miss Britt, I didn't know that was you, Seth smiled. My mother went to see you. She was having pain. Did you see her? He didn't seem concerned about his mother, more that he was stating the fact of her whereabouts. I knew without asking that Els had played down her pain so as to not alarm her boy, and the idea that she was no longer living was the furthest thing from his mind. Seth was only twelve years old. His skin was pale and his body was thin like his mother's. His gray-blue eyes danced with excitement to recognize me. He was tall for his age, lanky and uncoordinated. He may have been more muscular like his father was, but I'm not sure his diet had been sufficient. Seth attended school with Isla and Chasen. Isla had said very little about him, but he was always sure to ask me about her. Seth turned as if someone inside the grocers was talking to him. I couldn't hear what they said, but I was sure it was something to the effect of, close the door, kid. Seth apologized and stepped into the mall with me, gently closing the door behind him. As he approached, I wished I'd had taken a moment to look at myself to know if I had evidence of emotion all over my face. I figured that at least if my nose was running or bright red, it could be blamed on cold weather. Are you alone? I asked. Yes, ma'am. Just dropping off some seeds to trade for bread for dinner tonight. I know my mother and the baby will be hungry, he said thoughtfully, and a small smile spread across his face. My heart sank. I could tell that he loved the thought of taking care of his mother and unborn sibling. He had no idea of the tragedy that lay before him. I wished that I could trap this moment in time for him. I would have preserved it for as long as I could. But deep inside of me, I knew it was only a matter of moments before his world came crashing down. Seth? I was at a loss for words, but I knew I didn't want to share the bad news with him in the middle of the stupid public mall for all the passers-by to see. Your mother is with my father at the clinic. Would you like to come to my cottage for a while to wait? Isla and Chasen are home. I chose my words carefully. Of course, at the mere mention of Isla's name, his attention was piqued and he nodded in agreement. Sure, I'll wait with you, he smirked. On the walk home, I tried to keep the conversation light to sidestep the obvious questions hanging in the air between us. As we walked down my lane, he was quiet. When we finally arrived at my porch, he stopped on the doorstep right before me. It wasn't until he turned around that I noticed a solemn look on his face. His gray-blue eyes filled with tears, and he gasped. I saw it, Miss Britt. I saw the carriage at your office. I saw Mr. Willoughby. Willoughby. Willoughby was a representative for the guiding authority. He is the population bookkeeper. When there was an addition or subtraction to the Abbott's population, he was called in to update the records. Seth knew. He knew that if Willoughby had been adding one to the records, he would have been. They would have called for Seth with the good news before the population bookkeeper. Seth was a sharp kid. 
I opened my mouth but didn't say anything. He searched my lips, desperately waiting for me to say something that made sense. When I couldn't spit anything out, he crumbled, collapsing to his knees, crying silently. I caught him up in my arms and wrapped my body around his. He pressed his cheek against my chest and wailed fearlessly. Maternal instincts set in. I swayed with him, holding his face against my body. His wails calmed slightly as he struggled to catch his breath, then his cries turned into silent convulsions. For the first time since I'd seen her life escape her, a tear finally fell from me, followed by more. I could no longer contain them. My tears fell on the back of his coat and created a dark polka dot pattern. I stroked his messy blonde hair, trying desperately to think of words to console him. I couldn't bring myself to tell him that it was all going to be okay. I didn't know that it would be. When a child is orphaned in the ambit, someone has to step up and claim them, or they'd be left to their own devices. I already knew that Elva's mystery man wouldn't step up. And with that thought, I began sputtering out words before I could even process them. Seth, look at me, I ordered. He looked up at me through broken tears and expression. I don't know what this means for you, but I promise you that if no one else claims you, I will. You won't be alone. You deserve better than that, do you hear me? I was shocked at my own words. I could barely handle the workload and children I was already responsible for. But I was tired of sitting by while human lives were dismissed. I had already lost L's and the baby that day, and I wasn't going to let Seth slip through the cracks, too. I felt like I owed it to L's. Someone did. Seth nodded. Any doubt that I had about my promise disappeared as his bony fingers grasped me tighter and his sobbing calmed. I heard him take a deep breath and saw the steam as he exhaled into the cold. For a few minutes more, I held him on the porch. A creak whistled as the cottage door swung open and Isla stepped into view. She looked down on us with confusion and, per usual, her eyebrows frowned at me. Hi, Seth. Are you okay? She looked at me. Mother, what's going on? Seth looked up from our embrace. He cleared his throat, wiped his face with the sleeve of his coat, and uttered a shy hello. I looked at Seth for approval to share the bad news. He caught me glancing at him, and immediately his focus went to the porch. I knew it wasn't my place to tell what had happened and felt relieved because I wasn't sure if I could utter the words either. Instead, I simply answered, Isla, get washed up. Seth's going to be eating with us. Chapter 2, On the Outside I sat down to rest in the rocking chair next to the fireplace while the last of the sunset twinkled through our only window. The pink and yellow, orange and red colors filled the room and then slipped away, leaving, our only, leaving only our crackling fireplace and Isla's lantern to warm us. For dinner, we had fresh bread and cooked beans that I could feel settling in my belly. A sensation of absolute contentment and delight passed over me as I watched each of the children go about their nighttime routine. From time to time, I chose to pause and take these moments in, because moments of peace like this in the ambit seemed to be too few and far between. Isla pulled the bench under her as she sat down at the long dining table with her books to study. Every now and then, almost as though she didn't realize it, a subtle hum would rise from her. If she didn't catch herself soon enough, her head would even start to bob from side to side as she let whatever story she was reading suck her in. 
For a young girl who had far too much responsibility rest on her shoulders, it was nice to see her slip into a childlike way. It gave me hope that all the pressure of our society and the life that was chosen for her hadn't completely robbed her of her innocence. Below her on the floor in front of the fire, the boys played together. Steph had been with us for almost six months, and while Isla tolerated him, I could sometimes catch a glint of jealousy in her eyes for the attention that her brother gave him. Kaysen loved having another boy in our home. He wasn't able to leave the cottage regularly because of his health, so he adored Steph's unconditional companionship. Most of the time, Chasen was able to attend school, but when he missed a day, he relied on Isla to bring home his books and tutor him on the missed assignments. Because they were the same age, they learned the same lessons, and because they were twins, they spoke the same language. Isla was a phenomenal teacher for her brother, and she never allowed him to use his illness as an excuse. She constantly pushed him to strive harder to keep up with the rest of the children their age, including her. There were times that I felt guilty for the maturity Isla had assumed as her brother's keeper, and I wished her childhood could have been simpler, but in the end, I knew Isla and Chasen would be stronger for the challenges they faced. On the days when Chasen was stuck at home sick, he passed the time by whittling wood knickknacks. I wasn't quite sure where he'd learned to do it, but one day he just picked up a block of wood and a knife. Before I knew it, he'd created an amazing little character. I've collected them for years now, keeping them neatly lined up on the mantle above the fireplace where the boys play each evening. On the floor, Chasen and Seth laid out a play rug with drawings of trees and houses on it. Chasen had specifically designed some miniature carts, shrubs, and people for this game, which centered around two very special toy cars. The cars, one red and the other yellow, were Chasen's most prized possessions because they were a gift from his father. The day that James brought them home for Chasen was nearly six years ago. At the time, he was only five years old. My heart fluttered for a second when I remembered James giving Chasen the linen cloth containing the cars. I don't think Chasen ever imagined something so colorful and new would be buried inside. James could barely stand the anticipation as he beamed from ear to ear waiting to see his son discover them. Chasen had never seen anything like a car and James loved the idea of introducing something new to our kids, even if it was something that the guiding authority may have frowned upon. On that special day, I remember James crouching down in front of Chasen to make eye contact with him. I had some just like these when I was your age, James said proudly. I thought you might like them. Chasen's eyes glowed as he fumbled them around, studying them and trying to decide how to best play with them. James lovingly took one from his hand and placed it on the table and showed Chasen how to roll it. In no time, our boy had both cars zooming all over the table, crashing into each other. We all giggled at the sheer joy it brought him. Back then, I was too worried about the guiding authority to fully indulge in the moment. I remember pulling James aside to ask, Don't you think having those will get us in trouble? James just smiled and shrugged. I know it was risky, but so what? James pulled me into his chest and kissed the top of my head. The outside isn't as bad as they'd have you believe, love. I just wanted him to see a part of what it's like. It's a part of my life I haven't been able to share with him. I saw them and couldn't resist. He released me from his hold and then looked at me dead in the eye. A delighted giggle came from the other side of the room, filled our senses. Can we keep them? James asked, batting his long eyelashes at me. How could I have said no? In the ambit, everything that resembled life before it had emerged was either forbidden or forgotten. 
James knew as well as I did that the guiding authority would not have approved of this possession. But I adored watching the enjoyment that both of them got out of playing with the trinkets, so I agreed to keep the cars hidden in our cottage. They were never allowed to be removed from our home, and we never spoke to anyone but each other about them. I didn't know what the guiding authority would do if the cars were discovered in our possession, so I protected them for Chasen. We all protected them for him and for his father. James had a way of getting what he wanted. I couldn't fault him for it because it was one of my favorite things about him. He was the first and only person to ever request and receive entry into the ambit from the outside. Still to this day, no one's been able to duplicate that feat. The ambit citizens had never passed over the ambit crossing without permission. It was as if there was an imaginary death wish that went along with the notion of crossing it. No one had ever come to the ambit from the outside either. But I guess that one day James just did it. He marched through the mall, kindly asking who he could see about entrance. He was fearless and bold. James pled with the guiding authority, asking for the opportunity to transform his life from the outside to the ambit. At first, he was ordered to leave, but that didn't stop him from trying. The guiding authority didn't believe in violence, and there was never any need for it. If someone didn't respect their way of life, then they were banished. No one on the outside had ever wanted access to the ambit, so the situation had never presented itself. James was determined to be allowed access. So day after day, he camped at the ambit crossing and marched to the guiding authority with his humble request. It took 70 days before they finally agreed to let him stay. My father took notice of him immediately and used his standing with the guiding authority to help him gain access. At first, they set strict rules for him to abide by to make sure he was not going to cause the ambit any harm. Over time, he worked his way to a respectable standing with the guiding authority. Because of his outside experience, he had a wealth of knowledge about the world, so he was placed as a teacher at the school. In time, he was promoted to headmaster of the school. His knowledge was impressive. He knew more about he knew more than any other person in the ambit about things like history, literature, grammar, and geography. He knew a great deal about medicine and technology, too, but he never mentioned that to anyone but me. He knew better. I don't remember meeting James as much as I remember hearing about him day in and day out from my father. He was so impressed with James's brilliant mind and charisma that he couldn't talk of much else in the weeks following James's acceptance. James was a name that annoyed me until I met him for the first time. The thought of that name now completely warmed me from the inside out. The first time I saw him, it was like inhaling a breath of fresh air. And although James was more of a man than I had ever seen in the ambit, that wasn't what drew me to him. He was like a light that brightened every room he entered. His presence was like that of warmth. His skin and lips had color, and for a white man that was unheard of in the ambit. His eyes were blazing blue, and his hair was beautiful dark brown with highlights of yellow that shone in the sunlight. His body was sturdy and seductive. In the outside, eating meat was not forbidden, and I knew enough about the human body to know that the nutrients meat provided would produce a healthier, thicker build. James exemplified that perfectly. What drew me to him most of all was that he was different from anyone I'd ever met in the ambit. He actually spurred a little hope in me for what mankind could be like. Until James, I'd almost lost hope and love, faith and joy. The way he taught spoke to every ounce of me. It was like he ignited a fire inside that I had never experienced before. 
a fire that's never since been fueled by another. James once confided in me that his quest to become part of the ambit was because of his thirst for understanding our culture. He was intrigued by human nature. James said that the outside knew very little about the ambit and that rumors and lies had everyone confused as to our motives and beliefs in life. He wanted to experience it and see with his own eyes what life in the ambit was like. I remember him saying, Who are we to say that what one culture does is right or wrong? To truly understand someone, you have to look at where they came from because that's what shapes who they are and why they make the choices they do. Take a child, for example. If a child's caught stealing food, can you really say that the child is wrong? If they're doing what they were taught to do in order to survive? Sorry. First, we must actually care enough about the child and love her enough to try teaching her right from wrong. If we don't care enough about her to help her, then we're the ones that are wrong because we see a need and we do nothing about it. I had never looked at life or people in this way, and so James became like a drug to me. He was like kindling to my spirit, enlightening and beautiful. His positivity was contagious. I once asked whether he found the ambit to be disappointing or if it had exceeded his expectations. He never answered, but he joked that if the ambit ever became something he no longer desired to be a part of, he would just march out into the mall with a chicken leg and consume it for all to see. Then they'll just banish me back to the outside anyway for being a cannibal, he smirked. James used to tease that I had ruined him and his mission of studying the ambit and returning to the outside someday. He hadn't planned on falling in love and having children at all. He tried to convince himself that I was not his only weakness. I was not his only reason for staying in the ambit, and I was not his only temptation to stray from his mission. But in the end, his heart gave in to my monopolizing power over him. I secretly loved being that for him. I secretly loved being loved enough to sway him. I secretly loved that love existed in my life at all. James had a unique relationship with the Ambit's guiding authority. It shocked me when he managed to win them over to the idea that the outside could be of use to the Ambit. James campaigned that because he was originally from the outside, he was the perfect candidate to travel between the two communities in the hope of sharing pertinent information. James had a sincere desire to properly educate people, so he began taking journeys back to the outside to collect teaching materials for the Ambit School. The guiding authority allowed him, and only him, to exit and enter as he pleased. This was an incredible honor to James, one that he did not take lightly. Technically, Everyone had a choice of whether they wanted to participate in the Ambit's way of life. No one was forced to stay, and some did decide to leave, but none were allowed to re-enter once they'd chosen to abandon their pure and good life in the Ambit. Over time, some were banished for wrongdoing. The sure way to disrespect the guiding authority was to indulge in any of the three guilts, technology, medicine, or meat-eating. It was rare that banishments actually occurred, but it was known to happen. Most Ambit citizens feared the unknown world beyond the Ambit crossing, so the guiding authority kept most of its inhabitants trapped in a web of fear which kept them unsettlingly content. On a number of occasions, James had asked me if I had any interest in going to the outside. The idea alone frustrated me. It gave me serious anxiety to think of what life outside of the Ambit would be like. 
I always refused his request, which led to a number of disagreements between the two of us. All I'd ever known was the ambit, and while I trusted James implicitly, I did not trust the outside. I feared not being able to return to the ambit, where at least I felt safe. I hated the control that the guiding authority had over my life, but I didn't know anything else. I always tried to explain to James that we had our children to think about, which sparked even more contention between the two of us. Over time, he started showing signs of impatience and frustration with our life together. The journeys James took to the outside were more than an opportunity for him to gather information and teaching materials. They became a necessary part of his existence. When our children were born and Chasen took ill shortly after, James started to change. He knew enough about medicine and medical practices to teach Isla and I tricks for keeping, cha keeping Chasen comfortable, but he felt helpless for not being able to do more for our son. He talked at great length about wanting to sneak some medicine in to, che to ease Chasen's discomfort, but I pled with him not to. We, met, we had many late-night arguments regarding this issue as James begged me to reconsider moving our children to the outside of the ambit. I slowly watched as the light in his eyes dwindled and the warmth of his presence faded. His love for the people he'd come to learn from converted to slow hatred for their unwillingness to acknowledge our son's pain and suffering. I was so stupid to refuse James's request for us to escape with him. I was just a trapped insect in their web waiting for the guiding authority's belief to eat me slowly. My children were tangled with me and I had no hope to ever leave. I cursed the irony that Chasen could be cured with the outside's medicine if the journey to the outside didn't kill him on the way. My stupidity, my arrogance kept us here when we had a chance to pack up and leave with my James. Instead, it ate him up. It killed him on the inside. It robbed him of his passion for love and people and hope. In his quest to study humanity, he discovered both good and evil. He discovered arrogance in a place built on humility and humility in the place of arrogance, a cure among the sickest and the sickest among the pure, love in the most hated of places and hate in the most loved. There was no middle ground for him, no outlet to hope for a marriage between the two. He was the first to request entry to the ambit, the first to be accepted, the first to teach us about the outside, the first common link between the original way of life and the current one, but he couldn't mend the divide. He couldn't escape his own humanity, his weakness, his temptation. I was his downfall. The night before James left on his last journey to go to the outside, he prodded me again to allow him to bring medicine for Chasen. I'll never forget that night. We were lying in the pitch black as the fire crackled its last snap. I nestled into his underarm and rested my tired eyes. The kids were asleep in the upper loft of the cottage, so we quietly whispered our plans for the upcoming weeks as we de debated the repercussions of bringing a guilt into our home. Chasen awoke, coughing, wheezing, and gagging. We listened as Isla coached him on his breathing and sang him a quiet lullaby. Tears streamed from James's face and landed on mine as we held each other tight, listening to them quietly speak with one another. We have to do something, he whispered. It may have been the sheer heartache I detected in his broken voice, or it may have been my own exhaustion for Chasen's pain, but for the first time, I nodded in agreement. Get the medicine, 
I whispered so quietly I almost couldn't hear my own voice. I trembled as I uttered the words a second time, slightly louder, but with no more confidence. Get the medicine. James never returned home after that. I often think of that night. Many have speculated, much to my dismay, that he abandoned us for the outside. The guiding authority believed that he went crazy and that life got too hard for him, so he never returned. But I don't believe that because no one but me knows of our conversation the night before he left. No one knows that I gave him the best reason there was to return. And the worst part is that my proof of his devotion to his family is actually evidence of my willingness to indulge in a guilt. This was why I knew my husband was dead. I don't know how or where, but I know that he would have returned if he were alive. Period. I wished many times for that night to return me to me. I've begged for the opportunity to hold him, knowing that it would be our last night together. That's why sitting here now, in the coziness of the fire years later, I cherish the simple moments that I watch my children play. If only I had known that that was my last night with my husband. If only I had known that this was my last night with... Third. Nine, 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 nine. All right, chapter three. The crisis. <clears throat> Turn that back on. Isla, my beautiful Isla, was sitting silently across the room from me. Her gaze was blank and lost on the floor. I could tell that someone had carefully combed her fluffy brown curls into a sweeping barrette in the middle of the back of her head. She was wearing a new dress, soft purple with white lace trim. Her white leggings were clean and pressed, and black shiny shoes graced her feet, which were crossed at the ankles underneath her wooden chair. Her hands were folded in her lap, one clenched something that I couldn't quite make out. Next to her sat her grandfather, who on occasion placed his hand on hers or gave her a saf- soft pat on, her, on the leg. She graciously looked up at him when he did this so as to ease her, his comfort for her. Isla was beautiful for many reasons, but her most intriguing feature was what my father called heterochromia. It was a big word for describing someone who has two different colored eyes. My father explained to James and I after the twins were born that in my womb something must have happened that hindered the pigmentation of her one eye. And so while one eye obtained its naturally intended pigment and turned brown, the other did not. Without the pigment, her right eye turned out to be a dazzling blue. In her early years of school, the other children teased her because of it. But as she got older and grew into a young woman, her stubborn attitude kicked in and they didn't dare mock her. I'm pretty sure that if anyone had any negative thing to say about her at school, it would have been the girls because boys seemed to be nothing nothing but fond of her and her brilliant blue eye. It pained me to think of all that this poor little girl had been through in her short 11 years of life. The years that she had endured with a struggling single mother and sick brother, the work that she was required to do to help me, the responsibility she placed on herself for Chasen, and now the loss of him. Regardless of what color her eyes were naturally and how beautiful someone had toiled to make her appear, all I saw was sadness. I felt responsible for it. They believed I was. 
Good morning, Miss Britt, the soft voice said from behind where I was seated. I knew this voice was one of the only ones that would address me politely now. Seth. I twisted my body to see his warm face smiling cautiously at me. Good morning, Seth. How are you this morning, sweetheart? I'm okay. I got that thing you asked for. I was hoping that would maybe cheer you up a bit. He searched my face for any sign of excitement or relief. I mustered as much as I could find in me. Thank you, Seth. Can you hold on to it for me? I'm not really able to get it from you right now. I tried to joke, lifting my hands from my lap and showing him the thin rope that wrapped around my wrists to bind me. Oh, of course, he said, trying to laugh off my mocking the bindings, but failing. After an awkward few seconds of silence, he sputtered, Are you ready for today to hear the ruling? I didn't answer. Instead, I just nodded at him and inhaled a deep breath and inhaled a breath as deep as I could to keep my chin from quivering. I tightened the muscles in my face and swallowed the growing knot in my throat that threatened to break my facade of strength. Seth reached for my shoulder, squeezing it slightly. He caught my eye and curled up a corner of his mouth to sort of smile at me. I twisted my body back to face the front of the room. The long table that traversed the chair I was sitting in had five chairs more behind it. Behind the table and chairs hung chalkboards with erasers and chalk lined up immaculately on the ledge. On either end of the chalkboard was a window overlooking a small lake. Behind me, I could hear the hustle and bustle of the folks that had gathered to witness the ruling. I didn't bother to see who else was present. I cared only about Isla and Seth. Their attendance mattered. No one else even entered my mind. When the five representatives of the guiding authority entered the schoolhouse, a hush came over the observers. Each representative took their seat at the table opposite me, looking like they were carved from rock. Not one of them made eye contact with me as they settled into their seats to judge me. They were old and gray, stern and stoic. They were impossible to read. The short man on the end announced to the room as if we didn't already all know why we were here. Britt, you have been as you have been informed, we're here to rule about your misconduct in the ambit by way of indulging in the guilt. The man in the middle added, You've been accused of partaking in the guilt. What do you have to say for yourself? I knew this man well. In fact, I'd known him all my life, but in this moment he addressed me as though we'd never met. His name was Jonathan. He was an old friend of my father's. I studied his face for a second, looking for a smile, but only finding the scar that crossed over his thick pink lips. I watched his face for a sign that he might recognize me as the little girl that used to bounce on his knee. I waited to see if he would wink at me to reassure me that everything was going to be okay as he had so many times in my life. But he did none of these things. He only sat waiting for me to answer the claim. I've not done what you say I have. I stared at him dead in the eye. I broke my glare at him only to glance over at Isla to see her reaction. She wouldn't look at me. She just stared past the table of men at the lake outside the window. I could tell she was listening, though. Yesterday, Farrah from your clinic spoke against you, saying she heard you arguing with your father on the day of Elsa's death regarding the use of medical practices in the ambit. Do you deny this argument? Jonathan asked me point blank. I noticed the corner of his lip twitch. I hoped for a smile, but there was none. I do not, I answered. Again, I glared at him, waiting for him to show me a glimpse of the recognition I craved. Upon examination of your cottage, two toy cars were discovered in your possession, toy cars that only could have come from the outside. Do you deny this? He questioned. I do not, I answered, 
shooting a look toward Isla. She was fighting back tears. Her face twitched as evidence that she was listening. Your son, Chasen, age 11, died three days ago, she started. I interrupted. I know that, Jonathan. Thank you. The representative's face turned beet red with anger. Brit, I will remind you only one time. You are not to speak unless spoken to. Do you understand? I hated the disappointment I detected in his voice. Doesn't he know that I'm not guilty of this? Doesn't he know that I'm not guilty of what they say I am? I nodded begrudgingly. He started again, this time with a calmer demeanor. Are you aware of how your son died, Brit? My first tear of the day escaped my eye and strolled fearlessly down my face. I clenched it to contain its followers. My son was ill his whole life. We never fully understood why. My understanding is that he succumbed to his illness. Another tear leapt from my eye. I was amazed that I had any left to cry after the past three days of sobbing uncontrollably for my dead son. Britt, what do you know of the three guilts? Jonathan changed his line of questioning. I know what they are. Technology, medicine, and meat-eating. I scoffed at his implications that I didn't know what they were. They'd practically been beaten into us growing up in the ambit. I know that if someone in the ambit should partake of them, there are consequences. But most importantly, I know that I did not indulge in any of them. So to be frank, sir, I don't understand what we're doing here and what any of this has to do with my chasen, I said matter-of-factly. Britt, do you know why the laws against the three guilts were enacted? He ignored my outburst and interrogated me further. I looked around the room to see if anyone else was as confused as I as to where he was going with this, since this was a ruling, not a history lesson. I humored him and answered, In 2084, when the crisis happened, the Naturals were the majority rulers left in the world. Because the Naturals had not worshipped technology and medicine and didn't savagely kill animals and eat their flesh, they survived. In an effort to avoid repeating history and dooming the rest of mankind, the Naturals emerged as the ambit and enacted the laws against the three guilts. I recited this back to him, just as I had been required to recite it to my teachers in grade school when I first learned it. Yes, but are you aware of what caused the crisis? The fat man on the other end of the table quickly interrupted. And quickly interrupted. His outburst caught me off guard. I shifted my attention in confusion to him. The mill immunization, I answered. You mean the mill disease, don't you? He rebutted. Yes. I answered quietly, turning my attention to my father. He sat and stared directly at me, and for a moment I thought I saw pity in his eyes. What do you know about the mill disease, Brit? The fat man came at me again. I swallowed and thought carefully for a moment. What was he looking for? What did they want me to say? I didn't understand. I didn't know what was happening. I was getting the feeling that something I didn't expect was coming. I cautiously answered, The mill disease is what killed billions of people in 2084. I don't think anyone figured out what happened, but I know that something went wrong with the annual mill immunization that year and it killed everyone who got it. I can't be telling them anything they don't already know. But mill disease no longer exists because we have the laws against the three guilts. That's why we have the three guilts, to make sure that can't happen again, I argued, confused. That's correct, Britt. That's why we have the three guilts. What do you know about the symptoms of the mill disease? Jonathan spoke again. I welcomed his tone over the fat man's. Symptoms? I asked. I didn't think there were symptoms. 
Oldham, please join us at the table, Jonathan addressed my father. My eyes followed my father as he rose out of his chair and slowly made his way to the front of the room and took a seat beside me, directly across from Jonathan. Jonathan, my father nodded to the man in the middle, but he didn't acknowledge me next to him. Oldham, can you please describe the symptoms of the mill disease to us? Jonathan's tone dripped with respect. My father cleared his throat. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw that he was staring directly ahead. He never looked at me. He acted ashamed of me. I didn't bother to look at him either. The exact cause of mill disease is unknown to us. After the crisis occurred, no other cases of it have ever been recorded. My knowledge of it only goes to as far as what I witnessed firsthand in 2084. He waited to see if there was a reaction before he continued. As you know, I was a doctor of medicine and a supporter of the mill immunization. I administered the immunizations annually in the two-day window from June 4th to the 6th of each year. Americans were always the first to receive the vaccine. That's why we believe it didn't appear harmful right away. Americans had built up some immunity to whatever terminal flaw it contained. Regardless, within two to three months of the immunization, people started dying. He paused for questions. He looked down at his hands, which were folded on the table in front of him. He cleared his throat again. The room was silent. A majority of the witnesses in the room had never heard these details before. My father's first-hand account was a special treat for them, but I couldn't but I could feel it would somehow be dooming evidence against me. My father began again. The first symptoms indicated, indicating that something was wrong appeared in children and the elderly. It was almost as though their bodies acquired all the diseases that the mill immunization was designed to protect against at once and within weeks. He stopped for another moment, released a nervous sigh, and then continued on. Mill disease caused them to suffer, dying slowly, the final cause of death was determined to be asphyxiation. It caused their lungs to fill until they eventually drowned in their own blood. My father's voice cracked slightly. I couldn't help myself. I turned to see his face. I witnessed these deaths by the hundreds personally, he added quietly, like he was driving the final nail into my coffin. The room was quiet. Aldam, if you were a supporter of the immunization, can you share with us, please, why you didn't receive the immunization that year? Jonathan requested. My father nodded in agreement. He looked down at his hands. In the spring of 2084, I was in a car accident that seriously injured my leg, exposing the marrow. I was excluded from getting the vaccine that year because of it, but I... My father paused again, swallowing hard. But my two oldest daughters received the immunization that year. His face twitched slightly. The room was silent. Thank you, Aldam. I have one last question for you. Have you examined Chasen's body? Jonathan queried. I did, my father answered. He turned to look at me, and I thought he was going to address me, so I returned his stare. And what did you determine the cause of death to be? The fat man chimed in again. I was already sobbing. I searched my father's face for a glimmer of hope that he wasn't going to say what I thought he was. I knew what Chasen's condition was when I found him. I knew he'd bled to death. I knew what they were going to say, but I begged my father with my eyes not to tell them the lie I knew they craved. My grandson died of mill disease, he answered defiantly. I imagine that there was a gasp in the room, but I don't know for sure. I turned to find Isla's face, hoping that somewhere inside she knew it wasn't true. When I found her through the rising crowd, she was staring at me directly. 
She shot daggers at me many times before with her astounding eyes, but this time I'm sure that if she could have shot real ones at me, she would have. She closed her eyes to break the momentary connection between us and returned her gaze to the lake outside the window. Her face crumbled in agony as she refused to look back at me. Her sweetness melted away before me, and in that moment, I felt like I'd lost another child. We need this room to be quiet, Jonathan yelled over the crowd. If you cannot be quiet, you must leave the room at once. Jonathan, I'd like to say one more thing if you'll allow it, my father quickly requested. We know that Brit's your daughter, Aldham. Trust me, that's been taken into consideration. If there's something else you'd like to say, it'll have to wait until the ruling's over, he lectured my father. I was numb. I sat without feeling or thought. I stopped crying and breathing. I'm pretty sure the only breath I took now was because my body commanded it, not my mind. Therefore, Jonathan continued, Brit, it's our belief that you administered an immunization to chasten killing him. It's also our conclusion that you obtained the immunization from the outside by whatever means you obtained the other items that were found in your possession. We believe that with your medical knowledge, your connections with the outside, and your desperation to heal your son, you have given us ample reason to conclude that you are no longer suited for living in the ambit. Because your father's done a service for us through the years, we've granted him sole custody of your remaining child, Isla, and your adopted son, Seth. You, however, have been permanently banished from the ambit, never to be allowed entry again. And with that motion, Jonathan stood up and dismissed the representatives with haste. The next few minutes were a blur to me. I tried to stand up to go to Isla, but my knees buckled under me and my father caught me before I fell to the wood floor. I went limp. Get away from her, you stupid big, stupid jerk! Steph yelled at my father as he tried to step in between our bodies. Britt, get up, my father demanded. Don't talk to her! Steph screamed at him, throwing his puny 12-year-old fist at my father's chest. You're a liar! I hate you! How can you say those things? Britt, listen to me. You need to get up. My father was pulling me from the floor with one arm and holding Seth back with the other. Britt, are you listening to me? In a trance, I looked at him. I knew what they would do. There was nothing to be done. I arranged for Isla and Seth to stay with me. That's all I could do. I promise you, I didn't want this to happen. I have so much I need to tell you. He spoke quickly. I was drunk with confusion. Britt, are you listening to me? Seth stopped fighting my father's one arm and directed his attention to what he was saying. My father spoke softly so as to not allow too many others to hear his words. There's someone waiting for you at the Ambit Crossing. He'll take you to the outside, to a woman named Lucida. She'll help you get set up. She's a good woman. You can trust her. Your mother adored her. Another hand on my other arm lifted me up and started pulling me away from my father and Seth. Britt, there's so much you need to know, so much that James knew, but he couldn't tell you. You weren't ready to hear it. I gave up, but he was right all along. I know what he told you to do the night before he left. I know. I shouldn't have given up. James is... My father went on and on as they were pulling him out, of, pulling me out of the schoolhouse. Seth chased after me as, quick, as they quickly walked me down the mall toward the Ambit Crossing. I noticed him grab a bag that leaned up against the outside of the schoolhouse. He pulled it up over his shoulder and followed us closely. James? What did my father mean? He said something about James. What was it? I tried to memorize everything I'd heard but he was speaking so fast that I'd never be able to remember it all. My knees weakened beneath me. The men walking with me carried me as my feet dragged behind. I wailed aloud, screaming at the sky above me, James, Chasen, Isla, gone. 
As we passed the different venues and stands in the mall, the citizens stopped and gawked at me being escorted out. Of all the representatives that judged me moments ago, only one accompanied us to the ambit crossing, the mean, fat one. Jonathan was nowhere to be found. The fat man walked along ahead of me and my escorts with Willoughby, the population bookkeeper. They gleefully chatted as they walked like we were all out for a casual stroll. Willoughby's little black book was tucked neat and cozy under his arm. In a matter of minutes, my name was going to be erased from it as if I never existed, just as Chasen's name was, as if he'd never been born, as all the names before ours had just been subtracted. I began to welcome an exit from this hypocrisy. At the end of the mall, I noticed that Seth was no longer following us. I was relieved for a moment because I wasn't at all ready to say goodbye to him, too. Just as they promised, when we reached the ambit crossing, they cut the bindings from around my wrists. They pushed me over the invisible line that meant I was no longer a member of their society, and I was now an outsider. They said nothing to me. They just turned and walked away. I was nothing to them. I stood for a moment and looked back over the ambit that had been my home. I panned over the cottages in sight and the end of the mall that was still within view. I wasn't going to miss a blasted thing about this place. I was only going to miss my children. And it was then that I hit my knees, sobbing and screaming, writhing in agony for the week's events, unloading my emotion onto the dry, hard ground. Hope I didn't worry you, Miss Britt, but I couldn't leave without saying goodbye to my mother's old cart, a voice said. Seth came out of nowhere. He was standing on the ambit crossing, looking concerned that he'd worried me. Seth, what are you doing? Don't cross that line, I gasped. I barely had time to spew the warning before he deliberately stepped over the ambit crossing. I'm sorry, Miss Britt, but no. He walked closer to be by my side and knelt down next to me. He put his hand on mine. When no one else will claim you, I will, Seth argued. You didn't leave me, and I'm not leaving you. I buried my chin in my chest and cried. I felt so ashamed of what had happened and that he felt so indebted to me that he had just given up all that I had taken away. He wrapped his scrawny arms around me, and we cried together for our displacement, for our chasten, and our Isla. After a few minutes passed, Seth pulled back and said, Maybe now is a good time for me to give you leave. He forced a smile. I was so exhausted and confused about what he was referring to, I had completely forgotten my request for him to hold something for me from earlier that morning. From his satchel, he pulled a linen cloth, and as he unwrapped it, it revealed Chasen's little toy cars, one red and one yellow. I grabbed his hands while I still held the toys and kissed them all over. Seth's hands, the linen cloth, the dirty little toy cars. I didn't care. They were all I had left now.
Child, 